The body keeps the score. Brain, mind, and body in the healing of trauma. By Bessel A. van der Kolk, M.D. Narrated by Sean Pratt. Prologue. Facing Trauma. One does not have to be a combat soldier or visit a refugee camp in Syria or the Congo to encounter trauma. Trauma happens to us, our friends, our families, and our neighbors. Research by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has shown that one in five Americans was sexually molested as a child. One in four was beaten by a parent to the point of a mark being left on their body, and one in three couples engage in physical violence. A quarter of us grew up with alcoholic relatives, and one out of eight witnessed their mother being beaten or hit. As human beings, we belong to an extremely resilient species. Since time immemorial, we have rebounded from our rather relentless wars, countless disasters, both natural and man-made, and the violence and betrayal in our own lives. But traumatic experiences do leave traces, whether on a large scale, on our histories and cultures, or close to home, on our families, with dark secrets being imperceptibly passed down through generations. They also leave traces on our minds and emotions, on our capacity for joy and intimacy, and even on our biology and immune systems. Trauma affects not only those who are directly exposed to it, but also those around them. Soldiers returning from home, from combat, may frighten their families with their rages and emotional absence. The wives of men who suffer from PTSD tend to become depressed, and the children of depressed mothers are at risk of growing up insecure and anxious. Having been exposed to family violence as a child often makes it difficult to establish stable, trusting relationships as an adult. Trauma, by definition, is unbearable and intolerable. Most rape victims, combat soldiers, and children who have been molested become so upset when they think about what they experienced that they try to push it out of their minds, trying to act as if nothing happened and move on. It takes tremendous energy to keep functioning while carrying the memory of terror and the shame of utter weakness and vulnerability. While we all want to move beyond trauma, the part of our brain that is devoted to ensuring our survival deep below our rational brain, is not very good at denial. Long after a traumatic experience is over, it may be reactivated at the slightest hint of danger and mobilize disturbed brain circuits and secrete massive amounts of stress hormones. This precipitates unpleasant emotions, intense physical sensations, and impulsive and aggressive actions. These post-traumatic reactions feel incomprehensible and overwhelming. Feeling out of control, survivors of trauma often begin to fear that they are damaged to the core and beyond redemption. The first time I remember being drawn to study medicine was at a summer camp when I was about 14 years old. My cousin Michael kept me up all night explaining the intricacies of how kidneys work, how they secrete the body's waste materials, and then reabsorb the chemicals that keep the system in balance. I was riveted by his account of the miraculous way the body functions. Later, during every stage of my medical training, 
whether I was studying surgery, cardiology, or pediatrics. It was obvious to me that the key to healing was understanding how the human organism works. When I began my psychiatry rotation, however, I was struck by the contrast between the incredible complexity of the mind and the ways that we human beings are connected and attached to one another, and how little psychiatrists knew about the origins of the problems they were treating. Would it be possible one day to know as much about brains, minds, and love as we do about the other systems that make up our organism? We are obviously still years from attaining that sort of detailed understanding, but the birth of three new branches of science has led to an explosion of knowledge about the effects of psychological trauma, abuse, and neglect. Those new disciplines are neuroscience, the study of how the brain supports mental processes, developmental psychopathology, the study of the impact of adverse experiences on the development of mind and brain, and finally, interpersonal neurobiology, the study of how our behavior influences the emotions, biology, and mindsets of those around us. Research from these new disciplines has revealed that trauma produces actual physiological changes, including a recalibration of the brain's alarm system, an increase in stress hormone activity, and alterations in the system that filters relevant information from irrelevant. We now know that trauma compromises the brain area that communicates the physical, embodied feeling of being alive. These changes explain why traumatized individuals become hypervigilant to threat at the expense of spontaneously engaging in their day-to-day -day lives. They also help us understand why traumatized people so often keep repeating the same problems and have such trouble learning from experience. We now know that their behaviors are not the result of moral failings, or signs of lack of willpower or bad character. They are caused by actual changes in the brain. This vast increase in our knowledge about the basic processes that underlie trauma has also opened up new possibilities to palliate or even reverse the damage. We can now develop methods and experiences that utilize the brain's own natural neuroplasticity to help survivors feel fully alive in the present and move on with their lives. There are fundamentally three avenues. One, top-down, by talking, reconnecting with others, and allowing ourselves to know and understand what is going on with us while processing the memories of the trauma. Two, by taking medicines that shut down inappropriate alarm reactions or by utilizing other technologies that change the way the brain organizes information. And three, bottom-up by allowing the body to have experiences that deeply and viscerally contradict the helplessness, rage, or collapse that result from trauma. Which one of these is best for any particular survivor is an empirical question. Most people I have worked with require a combination. This has been my life's work. In this effort, I have been supported by my colleagues and students at the Trauma Center which I founded 30 years ago. Together we have treated thousands of traumatized children and adults, victims of child abuse, natural disasters, wars, accidents, and human trafficking, people who have suffered assaults by intimates and strangers. 
We have a long tradition of discussing all our patients in great depth at weekly treatment team meetings and carefully tracking how well different forms of treatment work for participating individuals. Our principal mission has always been to take care of the children and adults who have come to us for treatment. But from the very beginning, we have also dedicated ourselves to conducting research to explore the effects of traumatic stress on different populations and to determine what treatments work for whom. We have been supported by research grants from the National Institute of Mental Health, the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine, the Centers for Disease Control, and a number of private foundations to study the efficacy of many different forms of treatment, from medications to talking, yoga, EMDR, theater, and neurofeedback. The challenge is, how can people gain control over the residues of past trauma and return to being masters of their own ship? Talking, understanding, and human connections help, and drugs can dampen hyperactive alarm systems. But we will also see that the imprints from the past can be transformed by having physical experiences that directly contradict the helplessness, rage, and collapse that are part of trauma, and thereby regaining self-mastery. I have no preferred treatment modality, as no single approach fits everybody, but I practice all the forms of treatment that I discuss in this book. Each one of them can produce profound changes, depending on the nature of the particular problem and the makeup of the individual person. I wrote this book to serve as both a guide and an invitation, an invitation to dedicate ourselves to facing the reality of trauma, to explore how best to treat it, and to commit ourselves as a society to using every means we have to prevent it. Part 1. The Rediscovery of Trauma Chapter 1. Lessons from Vietnam Veterans I became what I am today at the age of twelve, on a frigid, overcast day in the winter of 1975. That was a long time ago, but it's wrong what they say about the past. Looking back now, I realize I have been peeking into that deserted alley for the last twenty-six years. Khalid Husseini, from the book The Kite Runner Some people's lives seem to flow in a narrative. Mine had many stops and starts. That's what trauma does. It interrupts the plot. It just happens, and then life goes on. No one prepares you for it. Jessica Stern, from the book Denial, A Memoir of Terror The Tuesday after the Fourth of July weekend, 1978, was my first day as a staff psychiatrist at the Boston Veterans Administration Clinic. As I was hanging a reproduction of my favorite Bruegel painting, The Blind Leading the Blind, on the wall of my new office, I heard a commotion in the reception area down the hall. A moment later, a large, disheveled man in a stained three-piece suit, carrying a copy of Soldier of Fortune magazine under his arm, burst through my door. He was so agitated and so clearly hungover that I wondered how I could possibly help this hulking man. I asked him to take a seat and tell me what I could do for him. His name was Tom. Ten years earlier, he had been in the Marines, doing his service in Vietnam. 
He had spent the holiday weekend holed up in his downtown Boston law office, drinking and looking at old photographs rather than with his family. He knew from previous years' experience that the noise, the fireworks, the heat, and the picnic in his sister's backyard against the backdrop of dense early summer foliage, all of which reminded him of Vietnam, would drive him crazy. When he got upset, he was afraid to be around his family because he behaved like a monster with his wife and two young boys. The noise of his kids made him so agitated that he would storm out of the house to keep himself from hurting them. Only drinking himself into oblivion or riding as Harley Davidson at dangerously high speeds helped him to calm down. Nighttime offered no relief. His sleep was constantly interrupted by nightmares about an ambush in a rice paddy back in Nam, in which all the members of his platoon were killed or wounded. He also had terrifying flashbacks in which he saw dead Vietnamese children. The nightmares were so horrible that he dreaded falling asleep and often stayed up for most of the night drinking. In the morning, his wife would find him passed out on the living room couch, and she and the boys had to tiptoe around him while she made them breakfast before taking them to school. Filling me in on his background, Tom said he had graduated from high school in 1965, the valedictorian of his class. In line with his family tradition of military service, he enlisted in the Marine Corps immediately after graduation. His father had served in World War II in General Patton's army, and Tom had never questioned his father's expectations. Athletic, intelligent, and an obvious leader, Tom felt powerful and effective after finishing basic training, a member of a team that was prepared for just about anything. In Vietnam, he quickly became a platoon leader, in charge of eight other Marines. Surviving slogging through the mud while being strafed by machine gun fire can leave people feeling pretty good about themselves and their comrades. At the end of his tour of duty, Tom was honorably discharged, and all he wanted was to put Vietnam behind him. Outwardly, that's exactly what he did. He attended college on the GI Bill, graduated from law school, married his high school sweetheart, and had two sons. Tom was upset by how difficult it was to feel any real affection for his wife, even though her letters had kept him alive in the madness of the jungle. Tom went through the motions of living a normal life, hoping that by faking it he would learn to become his old self again. He now had a thriving law practice and a picture-perfect family, but he sensed he wasn't normal. He felt dead inside. Although Tom was the first veteran I had ever encountered on a professional basis, many aspects of his story were familiar to me. I grew up in post-war Holland, playing in bombed-out buildings, the son of a man who had been such an outspoken opponent of the Nazis that he had been sent to an internment camp. My father never talked about his war experiences but he was given to outbursts of explosive rage that stunned me as a little boy. How could the man I heard quietly going down the stairs every morning to pray and read the Bible while the rest of the family slept have such a terrifying temper? How could someone whose life was devoted to the pursuit of social justice be so filled with anger? I witnessed the same puzzling behavior in my uncle, who had been captured by the Japanese in the Dutch East Indies, now Indonesia, and sent as a slave laborer to Burma, where he worked on the famous bridge over the River Kwai. He also rarely mentioned the war, and he, too, often erupted into uncontrollable rages. As I listened to Tom, I wondered if my uncle and my father had had nightmares and flashbacks, if they, too, had felt disconnected from their loved ones 
and unable to find any real pleasure in their lives. Somewhere in the back of my mind there must also have been my memories of my frightened and often frightening mother, whose own childhood trauma was sometimes alluded to and, I now believe, was frequently reenacted. She had the unnerving habit of fainting when I asked her what her life was like as a little girl, and then blaming me for making her so upset. When he assured by my obvious interest, Tom settled down to tell me just how scared and confused he was. He was afraid that he was becoming just like his father, who was always angry and rarely talked with his children, except to compare them unfavorably with his comrades who had lost their lives around Christmas 1944 during the Battle of the Bulge. As the session was drawing to a close, I did what doctors typically do. I focused on the one part of Tom's story that I thought I understood, his nightmares. As a medical student, I had worked in a sleep laboratory, observing people's sleep-dream cycles, and had assisted in writing some articles about nightmares. I had also participated in some early research on the beneficial effects of the psychoactive drugs that were just coming into use in the 1970s. So, while I lacked a true grasp of the scope of Tom's problems, the nightmares were something I could relate to, and as an enthusiastic believer in better living through chemistry, I prescribed a drug that we had found to be effective in reducing the incidence and severity of nightmares. I scheduled Tom for a follow-up visit two weeks later. When he returned for his appointment, I eagerly asked Tom how the medicines had worked. He told me he hadn't taken any of the pills. Trying to conceal my irritation, I asked him why. I realized that if I take the pills and the nightmares go away, he replied, I will have abandoned my friends, and their deaths will have been in vain. I need to be a living memorial to my friends who died in Vietnam. I was stunned. Tom's loyalty to the dead was keeping him from living his own life, just as his father's devotion to his friends had kept him from living. Both father's and son's experiences on the battlefield had rendered the rest of their lives irrelevant. How had that happened, and what could we do about it? That morning I realized I would probably spend the rest of my professional life trying to unravel the mysteries of trauma. How do horrific experiences cause people to become hopelessly stuck in the past? What happens in people's minds and brains that keeps them frozen, trapped in a place they desperately wish to escape? Why did this man's war not come to an end in February 1969, when his parents embraced him at Boston's Logan International Airport after his long flight back from Da Nang? Tom's need to live out his life as a memorial to his comrades taught me that he was suffering from a condition much more complex than simply having bad memories or damaged brain chemistry or altered fear circuits in the brain. Before the ambush in the rice paddy, Tom had been a devoted and loyal friend, someone who enjoyed life with many interests and pleasures. In one terrifying moment, trauma had transformed everything. During my time at the VA, I got to know many men who responded similarly. Faced with even minor frustrations, our veterans often flew instantly into extreme rages. 
The public areas of the clinic were pockmarked with impacts of their fists on the drywall, and security was kept constantly busy protecting claims agents and receptionists from enraged veterans. Of course, their behavior scared us, but I also was intrigued. At home, my wife and I were coping with similar problems in our toddlers, who regularly threw temper tantrums when told to eat their spinach or put on warm socks. Why was it, then, that I was utterly unconcerned about my kids' immature behavior, but deeply worried about what was going on with the vets, aside from their size, of course, which gave them the potential to inflict much more harm than my two-footers at home? The reason was that I felt perfectly confident that, with proper care, my kids would gradually learn to deal with frustrations and disappointments. But I was skeptical that I would be able to help my veterans reacquire the skills of self-control and self-regulation that they had lost in the war. Unfortunately, nothing in my psychiatric training had prepared me to deal with any of the challenges that Tom and his fellow veterans presented. I went down to the medical library to look for books on war neuroses, shell shock, battle fatigue, and any other term or diagnosis I could think of that might shed light on my patients. To my surprise, the library at the VA didn't have a single book about any of these conditions. Five years after the last American soldier left Vietnam, the issue of wartime trauma was still not on anybody's agenda. Finally, in the Countway Library at Harvard Medical School, I discovered The Traumatic Neuroses of War, which had been published in 1941 by a psychiatrist named Abram Cardiner. It described Cardiner's observations of World War I veterans and had been released in anticipation of the flood of shell-shocked soldiers expected to be casualties of World War II. Cardiner reported the same phenomena I was seeing. After the war, his patients were overtaken by a sense of futility. They became withdrawn and detached, even if they had functioned well before. What Cardiner called traumatic neuroses, today we call post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Cardiner noted that sufferers from traumatic neuroses develop a chronic vigilance for and sensitivity to threat. His summation especially caught my eye. He wrote, The nucleus of the neurosis is a physioneurosis. In other words, post-traumatic stress isn't all in one's head, as some people supposed, but has a physiological basis. Gardner understood even then that the symptoms have their origin in the entire body's response to the original trauma. Gardner's description corroborated my own observations, which was reassuring, but it provided me with little guidance on how to help the veterans. The lack of literature on the topic was a handicap, but my great teacher, Elvin Semrad, had taught us to be skeptical about textbooks. We had only one real textbook, he said, our patients. We should trust only what we could learn from them and from our own experience. This sounds so simple. But even as Semrat pushed us to rely upon self-knowledge, he also warned us how difficult that process really is, since human beings are experts in wishful thinking and obscuring the truth. I remember him saying, The greatest sources of our suffering are the lies we tell ourselves.
Working at the VA, I soon discovered how excruciating it can be to face reality. This was true both for my patients and for myself. We don't really want to know what soldiers go through in combat. We don't really want to know how many children are being molested and abused in our own society, or how many couples, almost a third, as it turns out, engage in violence at some point during their relationship. We want to think of families as safe havens in a heartless world, and of our own country as populated by enlightened, civilized people. We prefer to believe that cruelty occurs only in faraway places like Darfur or the Congo. It is hard enough for observers to bear witness to pain. Is it any wonder, then, that the traumatized individuals themselves cannot tolerate remembering it, and that they often resort to using drugs, alcohol, or self-mutilation to block out their unbearable knowledge? Tom and his fellow veterans became my first teachers in my quest to understand how lives are shattered by overwhelming experiences, and in figuring out how to enable them to feel fully alive. Again. Trauma and the Loss of Self The first study I did at the VA started with systematically asking veterans what had happened to them in Vietnam. I wanted to know what had pushed them over the brink, and why some had broken down as a result of that experience, while others had been able to go on with their lives. Most of the men I interviewed had gone to war feeling well-prepared, drawn close by the rigors of basic training and the shared danger. They exchanged pictures of their families and girlfriends. They put up with one another's flaws. And they were prepared to risk their lives for their friends. Most of them confided their dark secrets to a buddy, and some went so far as to share each other's shirts and socks. Many of the men had friendships similar to Tom's with Alex. Tom met Alex, an Italian guy from Malden, Massachusetts, on his first day in country, and they instantly became close friends. They drove their jeep together, listened to the same music, and read each other's letters from home. They got drunk together and chased the same Vietnamese bar girls. After about three months in country, Tom led his squad on a foot patrol through a rice paddy just before sunset. Suddenly, a hail of gunfire spurted from the green wall of the surrounding jungle, hitting the men around him one by one. Tom told me how he had looked on in helpless horror as all the members of his platoon were killed or wounded in a matter of seconds. He would never get one image out of his mind, the back of Alex's head as he lay face down in the rice paddy, his feet in the air. Tom wept as he recalled, He was the only real friend I ever had. Afterward, at night, Tom continued to hear the screams of his men and to see their bodies falling into the water. Any sounds, smells, or images that reminded him of the ambush, like the popping of firecrackers on the 4th of July, made him feel just as paralyzed, terrified, and enraged as he had the day the helicopter evacuated him from the rice paddy. Maybe even worse for Tom than the recurrent flashbacks of the ambush was the memory of what happened afterward. I could easily imagine how Tom's rage about his friend's death had led to the calamity that followed. It took him months of dealing with his paralyzing shame before he could tell me about it. Since time immemorial veterans, like Achilles in Homer's Iliad, 
have responded to the death of their comrades with unspeakable acts of revenge. The day after the ambush, Tom went into a frenzy in a neighboring village, killing children, shooting an innocent farmer, and raping a Vietnamese woman. After that, it became truly impossible for him to go home again in any meaningful way. How can you face your sweetheart and tell her that you brutally raped a woman just like her, or watch your son take his first step when you are reminded of the child you murdered? Tom experienced the death of Alex as if part of himself had been forever destroyed, the part that was good and honorable and trustworthy. Trauma, whether it is the result of something done to you or something you yourself have done, almost always makes it difficult to engage in intimate relationships. After you have experienced something so unspeakable, how do you learn to trust yourself or anyone else again? Or, conversely, how can you surrender to an intimate relationship after you have been brutally violated? Tom kept showing up faithfully for his appointments, as I had become, for him, a lifeline, the father he'd never had, and Alex who had survived the ambush. It takes enormous trust and courage to allow yourself to remember. One of the hardest things for traumatized people is to confront their shame about the way they behaved during the traumatic episode, whether it is objectively warranted, as in the commission of atrocities, or not, as in the case of a child who tries to placate her abuser. One of the first people to write about this phenomenon was Sarah Haley, who occupied an office next to mine at the VA clinic. In an article entitled, When the Patient Reports Atrocities, which became a major impetus for the ultimate creation of the PTSD diagnosis. She discussed the well-nigh intolerable difficulty of talking about and listening to the horrendous acts that are often committed by soldiers in the course of their war experiences. It's hard enough to face the suffering that has been inflicted by others, but deep down many traumatized people are even more haunted by the shame they feel about what they themselves did or did not do under the circumstances. They despise themselves for how terrified, dependent, excited, or enraged they felt. In later years, I encountered a similar phenomenon in victims of child abuse. Most of them suffered from agonizing shame about the actions they took to survive and maintain a connection with the person who abused them. This was particularly true if the abuser was someone close to the child, someone the child depended on, as is often the case. The result can be confusion about whether one was a victim or a willing participant, which in turn leads to bewilderment about the difference between love and terror, pain and pleasure. We will return to this dilemma throughout this book. Numbing Maybe the worst of Tom's symptoms was that he felt emotionally numb. He desperately wanted to love his family, but he just couldn't evoke any deep feelings for them. He felt emotionally distant from everybody, as though his heart were frozen, and he were living behind a glass wall. That numbness extended to himself as well. He could not really feel anything except for his momentary rages and his shame. He described how he hardly recognized himself when he looked in the mirror to shave. When he heard himself arguing a case in court, he would observe himself from a distance and wonder how this guy, who happened to look and talk like him, was able to make such cogent arguments. 
When he won a case, he pretended to be gratified, and when he lost, it was as though he had seen it coming and was resigned to the defeat even before it happened. Despite the fact that he was a very effective lawyer, he always felt as though he were floating in space, lacking any sense of purpose or direction. The only thing that occasionally relieved this feeling of aimlessness was intense involvement in a particular case. During the course of our treatment, Tom had to defend a mobster on a murder charge. For the duration of that trial, he was totally absorbed in devising a strategy for winning the case, and there were many occasions on which he stayed up all night to immerse himself in something that actually excited him. It was like being in combat, he said. He felt fully alive, and nothing else mattered. The moment Tom won that case, however, he lost his energy and sense of purpose. The nightmares returned, as did his rage attacks, so intensely that he had to move into a motel to ensure that he would not harm his wife or children. But being alone, too, was terrifying, because the demons of the war returned in full force. Tom tried to stay busy, working, drinking, and drugging, doing anything to avoid confronting his demons. He kept thumbing through Soldier of Fortune magazine, fantasizing about enlisting as a mercenary in one of the many regional wars then raging in Africa. That spring he took out his Harley and roared up the Kankamagas Highway in New Hampshire. The vibrations, speed, and danger of that ride helped him pull himself back together to the point that he was able to leave his motel room and return to his family. The Reorganization of Perception Another study I conducted at the VA started out as research about nightmares, but ended up exploring how trauma changes people's perceptions and imagination. Bill, a former medic who had seen heavy action in Vietnam a decade earlier, was the first person enrolled in my nightmare study. After his discharge, he had enrolled in a theological seminary and had been assigned to his first parish in a congregational church in a Boston suburb. He was doing fine until he and his wife had their first child. Soon after the baby's birth, his wife, a nurse, had gone back to work while he remained at home, working on his weekly sermon and other parish duties and taking care of their newborn. On the very first day he was left alone with the baby, it began to cry, and he found himself suddenly flooded with unbearable images of dying children in Vietnam. Bill had to call his wife to take over child care and came to the VA in a panic. He described how he kept hearing the sounds of babies crying and seeing images of burned and bloody children's faces. My medical colleagues thought that he must surely be psychotic because the textbooks of the time said that auditory and visual hallucinations were symptoms of paranoid schizophrenia. The same texts that provided this diagnosis also supplied a cause. Bill's psychosis was probably triggered by his feeling displaced in his wife's affections by their new baby. As I arrived at the intake office that day, I saw Bill surrounded by worried doctors who were preparing to inject him with a powerful antipsychotic drug and ship him off to a locked ward. They described his symptoms and asked my opinion. Having worked in a previous job on a ward specializing in the treatment of schizophrenics, I was intrigued. Something about the diagnosis didn't sound right. I asked Bill if I could talk with him, and after hearing his story, I unwittingly paraphrased something Sigmund Freud had said about trauma in 1895. 
I think this man is suffering from memories. I told Bill that I would try to help him, and after offering him some medications to control his panic, asked if he would be willing to come back a few days later to participate in my nightmare study. He agreed. As part of that study, we gave our participants a Rorschach test. Unlike tests that require answers to straightforward questions, responses to the Rorschach are almost impossible to fake. Rorschach provides us with a unique way to observe how people construct mental images from what is basically a meaningless stimulus, a blot of ink. Because humans are meaning-making creatures, we have a tendency to create some sort of image or story out of those ink blots, just as we do when we lie in a meadow on a beautiful summer day and see images in the clouds floating high above. What people make out of these blots can tell us a lot about how their mind works. On seeing the second card of the Rorschach test, Bill exclaimed in horror, This is that child that I saw being blown up in Vietnam. In the middle you see the charred flesh, the wounds, and the blood is spurting out all over. Panting and with sweat beating on his forehead, he was in a panic similar to the one that had initially brought him to the VA clinic. Although I had heard veterans describing their flashbacks, this was the first time I actually witnessed one. In that very moment in my office, Bill was obviously seeing the same images, smelling the same smells, and feeling the same physical sensations he had felt during the original event. Ten years after helplessly holding a dying baby in his arms, Bill was reliving the trauma in response to an ink blot. Experiencing Bill's flashback firsthand in my office helped me realize the agony that regularly visited the veterans I was trying to treat and helped me appreciate again how critical it was to find a solution. The traumatic event itself, however horrendous, had a beginning, a middle, and an end. But I now saw that flashbacks could be even worse. You never know when you will be assaulted by them again, and you have no way of telling when they will stop. It took me years to learn how to effectively treat flashbacks, and in this process, Bill turned out to be one of my most important mentors. When we gave the Rorschach test to 21 additional veterans, the response was consistent. Sixteen of them, on seeing the second card, reacted as if they were experiencing a wartime trauma. The second Rorschach card is the first card that contains color, and often elicits so-called color shock in response. The veterans interpreted this card with descriptions like, These are the bowels of my friend Jim after a mortar shell ripped him open. And, this is the neck of my friend Danny after his head was blown off by a shell while we were eating lunch. None of them mentioned dancing monks, fluttering butterflies, men on motorcycles, or any of the other ordinary, sometimes whimsical images that most people see. While the majority of the veterans were greatly upset by what they saw, the reactions of the remaining five were even more alarming. They simply went blank. This is nothing, they observed, just a bunch of ink. They were right, of course, but the normal human response to ambiguous stimuli is to use our imagination to read something into them. We learn from these Rorschach tests that traumatized people have a tendency to superimpose their trauma on everything around them and have trouble deciphering whatever is going on around them. There appeared to be little in between.
We also learn that trauma affects the imagination. The five men who saw nothing in the blots had lost the capacity to let their minds play. But so too had the other sixteen men, for in viewing scenes from the past in those blots, they were not displaying the mental flexibility that is the hallmark of imagination. They simply kept replaying an old reel. Imagination is absolutely critical to the quality of our lives. Our imagination enables us to leave our routine everyday existence by fantasizing about travel, food, sex, falling in love, or having the last word. All the things that make life interesting. Imagination gives us the opportunity to envision new possibilities. It's an essential launchpad for making our hopes come true. It fires our creativity, relieves our boredom, alleviates our pain, enhances our pleasure, and enriches our most intimate relationships. When people are compulsively and constantly pulled back into the past, to the last time they felt intense involvement and deep emotions, they suffer from a failure of imagination, a loss of mental flexibility. Without imagination, there is no hope, no chance to envision a better future, no place to go, no goal to reach. The Rorschach tests also taught us that traumatized people look at the world in a fundamentally different way from other people. For most of us, a man coming down the street is just someone taking a walk. A rape victim, however, may see a person who is about to molest her and go into a panic. A stern schoolteacher may be an intimidating presence to an average kid, but for a child whose stepfather beats him up, she may represent a torturer and precipitate a rage attack or a terrified cowering in the corner. Stuck in Trauma Our clinic was inundated with veterans seeking psychiatric help. However, because of an acute shortage of qualified doctors, all we could do was put most of them on a waiting list even as they continued brutalizing themselves and their families. We began seeing a sharp increase in arrests of veterans for violent offenses and drunken brawls, as well as an alarming number of suicides. I received permission to start a group for young Vietnam veterans to serve as a sort of holding tank until real therapy could start. At the opening session for a group of former Marines, the first man to speak flatly declared, I do not want to talk about the war. I replied that the members could discuss anything they wanted. After half an hour of excruciating silence, one veteran finally started to talk about his helicopter crash. To my amazement, the rest immediately came to life, speaking with great intensity about their traumatic experiences. All of them returned the following week and the week after. In the group they found resonance and meaning in what had previously been only sensations of terror and emptiness. They felt a renewed sense of the comradeship that had been so vital to their war experience. And they insisted that I had to be part of their newfound unit, and gave me a Marine captain's uniform for my birthday. In retrospect, that gesture revealed part of the problem. You were either in or out. You either belonged to the unit or you were nobody. After trauma, the world becomes sharply divided between those who know and those who don't. People who have not shared the traumatic experience cannot be trusted because they can't understand it. 
Sadly, this often includes spouses, children, and co-workers. Later, I led another group, this time for veterans of Patton's army, men now well into their seventies, all old enough to be my father. We met on Monday mornings at eight o'clock. In Boston, winter snowstorms occasionally paralyzed the public transit system, but to my amazement, all of them showed up even during blizzards, some of them trudging several miles through the snow to reach the VA clinic. For Christmas, they gave me a 1940s GI-issue wristwatch. As had been the case with my group of Marines, I could not be their doctor unless they made me one of them. Moving as these experiences were, the limits of group therapy became clear when I urged the men to talk about the issues they confronted in their daily lives, their relationships with their wives, children, girlfriends, and family, dealing with their bosses and finding satisfaction in their work, their heavy use of alcohol. Their typical response was to balk and resist and instead recount yet again how they had plunged a dagger through the heart of a German soldier in the Hurtgen Forest, or how their helicopter had been shot down in the jungles of Vietnam. Whether the trauma had occurred ten years in the past, or more than forty, my patients could not bridge the gap between their wartime experiences and their current lives. Somehow, the very event that caused them so much pain had also become their sole source of meaning. They felt fully alive only when they were revisiting their traumatic past. Diagnosing Post-Traumatic Stress In those early days at the VA, we labeled our veterans with all sorts of diagnoses. Alcoholism, substance abuse, depression, mood disorder, even schizophrenia. And we tried every treatment in our textbooks. But for all our efforts, it became clear that we were actually accomplishing very little. The powerful drugs we prescribed often left the men in such a fog that they could barely function. When we encouraged them to talk about the precise details of a traumatic event, we often inadvertently triggered a full-blown flashback, rather than helping them resolve the issue. Many of them dropped out of treatment because we were not only failing to help, but also sometimes making things worse. A turning point arrived in 1980 when a group of Vietnam veterans aided by the New York psychoanalysts Chaim Shatan and Robert J. Lifton, successfully lobbied the American Psychiatric Association to create a new diagnosis, Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, PTSD, which described a cluster of symptoms that was common, to a greater or lesser extent, to all of our veterans. Systematically identifying the symptoms and grouping them together into a disorder finally gave a name to the suffering of people who were overwhelmed by horror and helplessness. With a conceptual framework of PTSD in place, the stage was set for a radical change in our understanding of our patients. This eventually led to an explosion of research and attempts at finding effective treatments. Inspired by the possibilities presented by this new diagnosis, I proposed a study on the biology of traumatic memories to the VA. Did the memories of those suffering from PTSD differ from those of others? For most people, the memory of an unpleasant event eventually fades or is transformed into something more benign. But most of our patients were unable to make their past into a story that happened long ago. 
The opening line of the grant rejection read, It has never been shown that PTSD is relevant to the mission of the Veterans Administration. Since then, of course, the mission of the VA has become organized around the diagnosis of PTSD and brain injury, and considerable resources are dedicated to applying evidence-based treatments to traumatized war veterans. But at the time, things were different, and unwilling to keep working in an organization whose view of reality was so at odds with my own, I handed in my resignation. In 1982, I took a position at the Massachusetts Mental Health Center, the Harvard Teaching Hospital, where I had trained to become a psychiatrist. My new responsibility was to teach a fledgling area of study, psychopharmacology, the administration of drugs to alleviate mental illness. In my new job, I was confronted on an almost daily basis with issues I thought I had left behind at the VA. My experience with combat veterans had so sensitized me to the impact of trauma that I now listened with a very different ear when depressed and anxious patients told me stories of molestation and family violence. I was particularly struck by how many female patients spoke of being sexually abused as children. This was puzzling, as the standard textbook of psychiatry at the time stated that incest was extremely rare in the United States, occurring about once in every million women. Given that there were then only about 100 million women living in the United States, I wondered how 47, almost half of them, had found their way to my office in the basement of the hospital. Furthermore, the textbook said, there is little agreement about the role of father-daughter incest as a source of serious, subsequent psychopathology. My patients with incest histories were hardly free of subsequent psychopathology. They were profoundly depressed, confused, and often engaged in bizarrely self-harming behaviors, such as cutting themselves with razor blades. The textbook went on to practically endorse incest, explaining that such incestuous activity diminishes the subject's chance of psychosis and allows for a better adjustment to the external world. In fact, as it turned out, incest had devastating effects on women's well-being. In many ways, these patients were not so different from the veterans I had just left behind at the VA. They also had nightmares and flashbacks. They also alternated between occasional bouts of explosive rage and long periods of being emotionally shut down. Most of them had great difficulty getting along with other people and had trouble maintaining meaningful relationships. As we now know, war is not the only calamity that leaves human lives in ruins. Well, about a quarter of the soldiers who serve in war zones are expected to develop serious post-traumatic problems. The majority of Americans experience a violent crime at some time during their lives. And more accurate reporting has revealed that 12 million women in the United States have been victims of rape. More than half of all rapes occur in girls below age 15. For many people, the war begins at home. Each year, about three million children in the United States are reported as victims of child abuse and neglect. One million of these cases are serious and credible enough to force local child protective services or the courts to take action. In other words, for every soldier who serves in a war zone abroad, 
there are ten children who are endangered in their own homes. This is particularly tragic since it is very difficult for growing children to recover when the source of terror and pain is not enemy combatants, but their own caretakers. A New Understanding In the three decades since I met Tom, we have learned an enormous amount not only about the impact and manifestations of trauma, but also about ways to help traumatized people find their way back. Since the early 1990s, brain imaging tools have started to show us what actually happens inside the brains of traumatized people. This has proven essential to understanding the damage inflicted by trauma and has guided us to formulate entire new avenues of repair. We have also begun to understand how overwhelming experiences affect our innermost sensations and our relationship to our physical reality, the core of who we are. We have learned that trauma is not just an event that took place sometime in the past. It's also the imprint left by that experience on mind, brain, and body. This imprint has ongoing consequences for how the human organism manages to survive in the present. Trauma results in a fundamental reorganization of the way mind and body manage perceptions. It changes not only how we think and what we think about, but also our very capacity to think. We have discovered that helping victims of trauma find the words to describe what has happened to them is profoundly meaningful, but usually it is not enough. The act of telling the story doesn't necessarily alter the automatic physical and hormonal responses of bodies that remain hypervigilant, prepared to be assaulted or violated at any time. For real change to take place, the body needs to learn that the danger has passed and to live in the reality of the present. Our search to understand trauma has led us to think differently not only about the structure of the mind, but also about the processes by which it heals. Chapter 2 Revolutions in Understanding Mind and Brain The greater the doubt, the greater the awakening. The smaller the doubt, the smaller the awakening. No doubt, no awakening. C.C. Chang from The Practice of Zen You live through that little piece of time that is yours, but that piece of time is not only your own life. It is the summing up of all the other lives that are simultaneously with yours. What you are is an expression of history. Robert Penn Warren from World Enough and Time In the late 1960s, during a year off between my first and second years of medical school, I became an accidental witness to a profound transition in the medical approach to mental suffering. I had landed a plum job as an attendant on a research ward at the Massachusetts Mental Health Center, where I was in charge of organizing recreational activities for the patients. The MMHC had long been considered one of the finest psychiatric hospitals in the country, a jewel in the crown of the Harvard Medical School teaching empire. The goal of the research on my ward was to determine whether psychotherapy or meditation was the best way to treat young people who had suffered a first mental breakdown diagnosed as schizophrenia. 
The talking cure, an offshoot of Freudian psychoanalysis, was still the primary treatment for mental illness at MMHC. However, in the early 1950s, a group of French scientists had discovered a new compound, chlorpromazine, sold under the brand name Thorazine, that could tranquilize patients and make them less agitated and delusional. That inspired hope that drugs could be developed to treat serious mental problems such as depression, panic, anxiety, and mania, as well as to manage some of the most disturbing symptoms of schizophrenia. As an attendant, I had nothing to do with the research aspect of the ward and was never told what treatment any of the patients was receiving. They were all close to my age. College students from Harvard, MIT, and Boston University. Some had tried to kill themselves. Others cut themselves with knives or razor blades. Several had attacked their roommates or had otherwise terrified their parents or friends with their unpredictable, irrational behavior. My job was to keep them involved in normal activities for college students, such as eating at the local pizza parlor, camping in a nearby state forest, attending a Red Sox game, and sailing on the Charles River. Totally new to the field, I sat in rapt attention during ward meetings, trying to decipher the patient's complicated speech and logic. I also had to learn to deal with their irrational outbursts and terrified withdrawal. One morning I found a patient standing like a statue in her bedroom with one arm raised in a defensive gesture, her face frozen in fear. She remained there, immobile, for at least twelve hours. The doctors gave me the name for her condition, catatonia, but even the textbooks I consulted didn't tell me what could be done about it. We just let it run its course. Trauma Before Dawn I spent many nights and weekends on the unit, which exposed me to things the doctors never saw during their brief visits. When patients could not sleep, they often wandered in their tightly wrapped bathrobes into the darkened nursing station to talk. The quiet of the night seemed to help them open up, and they told me stories about having been hit, assaulted, or molested, often by their own parents, sometimes by relatives, classmates, or neighbors. They shared memories of lying in bed at night, helpless and terrified, hearing their mother being beaten by their father or a boyfriend, hearing their parents yell, horrible threats at each other, hearing the sounds of furniture breaking. Others told me about fathers who came home drunk, hearing their footsteps on the landing, and how they waited for them to come in, pull them out of bed, and punish them for some imagined offense. Several of the women recalled lying awake, motionless, waiting for the inevitable, a brother or father coming in to molest them. During morning rounds, the young doctors presented their cases to their supervisors, a ritual that the ward attendants were allowed to observe in silence. They rarely mentioned stories like the ones I'd heard. However, many later studies have confirmed the relevance of those midnight confessions. We now know that more than half the people who seek psychiatric care have been assaulted, abandoned, neglected, or even raped as children, or have witnessed violence in their families. But such experiences seemed to be off the table during rounds. I was often surprised by the dispassionate way patients' symptoms were discussed 